Volume One, Chapter One of The Day Will Come. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recorded by Celine Major. The Day Will Come by Mary Elizabeth Braddon. Chapter One Farewell, too, now at last, farewell, fair lily the joy-bells clashed out upon the clear bright air startling the rooks on the elm-trees that showed their leafy tops above the grey gables of the old church the bells broke out with sudden jubilation sudden albeit the village had been on the alert for that very sound all the summer afternoon uncertain as to when the signal for that joy peal might be given the signal had come now given by the telegraph wires to the old postmistress and sent on to the expectant ringers in the church tower the young couple had arrived at wareham station five miles off and four horses were bringing them to their honeymoon home yonder amidst the old woods of cheriton chase cheriton village had been on tiptoe with expectancy ever since four o'clock although common sense ought to have informed the villagers that a bride and bridegroom who were to be married at two o'clock in the westminster abbey were not very likely to appear at cheriton early in the afternoon but the village having made up its mind to a half-holiday was glad to begin early a little knot of gypsies from the last race meeting in the neighbourhood had improved the occasion and set up the friendly and familiar image of aunt sally on the green in front of the eagle inn while a rival establishment had started a pictorial shooting gallery with a rubicund giant's face and wide-open mouth grinning at the populace across a barrel of barcelona nuts there are some people who might think cheriton village and cheriton chase too remote from the busy world and its traffic to be subject to strong emotions of any kind yet even in this region of purbeck cut off from the rest of england by a winding river and ostentatiously calling itself an island there were eager interests and warm feelings and many a link with the great world of men and women on the other side of the stream cheriton chase was one of the finest places in the county of dorset it lay south of wareham between corfe castle and braxy island and in the midst of scenery which has a peculiar charm of its own a curious blending of level pasture and steep hillside barren heath and fertile water-meadow here a dutch landscape grazing cattle and winding stream there a suggestion of some lonely scottish deer-walk an endless variety of outline and yonder on the steep hilltop the grim stone walls and mouldering bastions of corfe castle standing dark and stern against the blue fair-weather sky or boldly confronting the force of the tempest cheriton house was almost as old as corfe in the estimation of some of the country people its history went back into the night of ages but while the castle had suffered siege and battery by cromwell's ruthless cannon and had been left to stand as that arch-destroyer left it until only the outer walls of the mighty fabric remained with a tower or two and the mullions of one great window standing above the rest the mere skeleton of the gigantic pile cheriton house had been cared for and added to century after century so that it presented now a picturesque blending of old and new in which almost every corridor and every room was a surprise to the stranger never had cheriton been better cared for than by its present owner nor had cheriton village owned a more beneficent lord of the manor and yet lord cheriton was an alien and a stranger to the soil and that kind of person whom rustics mostly are inclined to look down upon a self-made man the present master of cheriton was a man who owed wealth and distinction to his own talents he had been raised to the peerage about fifteen years before this day of clashing joy-bells and village rejoicings 
he had been owner of the cheriton estate for more than twenty years having bought the property on the death of the last squire and at a time of unusual depression he was popularly supposed to have got the estate for an old song but the old song meant something between seventy and eighty thousand pounds and represented the bulk of his wife's fortune he had not been afraid to so swamp his wife's dowry for he was at this time one of the most popular silk gowns at the equity bar he was making four or five thousand a year and he was strong in the belief in his power to rise higher the purchase prompted by ambition and a desire to take his place among the landed gentry had turned out a very lucky one from a financial point of view for a stone quarry that had been unworked for more than a century was speedily developed by the new owner of the soil and became a source of income which enabled him to improve mansion-house and farms without embarrassment under mr dalbrook's improving hand the cheriton estate which had been gradually sinking to decay in the occupation of an exhausted race became as perfect as human ingenuity combined with judicious outlay can make any estate the falcon eye of the master was on all things the famous advocate's only idea of a holiday was to work his hardest in the supervision of his dorsetshire property he thought of cheriton many a time in the law courts as fox used to think of st anne's and his turnips amidst the debauchery of a long night's card-playing or in the whirl of a stormy debate purbeck might have been the motto and password of his life he was born at dorchester the son of humble shopkeeping parents and was educated at the quaint old stone grammar school in that good old town all his happiest hours of boyhood had been spent in the isle of purbeck those watery meadows and breezy commons and breakneck hills had been his playground and when he went back to them as a hard-headed overworked man of the world made arrogant from the magnitude of a success which had never known check or retrogression the fountains of his heart were unlocked by the very atmosphere of that fertile land where the salt breath of the sea came tempered by the balmy perfume of the heather the odour of hedgerow flowers rosemary and thyme at cheriton james dalbrook unbent forgot that he was a great man and remembered only that his lot was cast in a pleasant place and that he had the most lovable of wives and the loveliest of daughters his daughter had been born at cheriton had known no other country home and had never considered the first-floor flat in victoria street where her father and mother spent the london season and where her father had his pied-à-terre all the year round in the light of a home his daughter juanita was the eldest of three children born in the old manor-house the two younger both sons died in infancy and it seemed to james dalbrook that there was a blight upon his offspring such a blight as that which withered the male children of henry of england and catherine of aragon much had been given to him he had been allowed to make name and fortune he whose sole heritage was a little crockery shop in a second-rate street of dorchester he had enjoyed the lordship of broad acres the honours and position of a rural squire but he was not to be allowed that crowning glory for which strong men yearn he was not to be the first of a long line of barons sheraton of sheraton after the grief and disappointment of those two deaths first of an infant of a few weeks old and afterwards of a lovely child of two years james dalbrook hardened his heart for a little while against the fair young sister who survived them she could not perpetuate that barony which was the crown of his greatness or if by special grace her father's title might be in after days bestowed upon the husband of her choice which in the event of her marrying judiciously and marrying wealth might not be impracticable it would be an alien to his race who would bear the title which he james dalbrook had created 
he had so longed for a son and behold two had been given to him and upon both the blight had fallen when people praised his daughter's childish loveliness he shook his head despondently thinking that she too would be taken like her brothers before ever the bud became a flower his heart sickened at the thought of this contingency and of his heir-at-law in the event of his dying childless a first cousin clerk in the auctioneer's office at weymouth a sandy-haired freckled youth without an aspirate with a fixed idea that he was an authority upon dress style and billiards an insupportable young man under any conditions but hateful to murderousness as one's next heir to think of that freckled snob strutting about the estate in years to come blinking with his white eyelashes at those things which had been so dear to the dead his wife to whom he owed the estate had no relations nearer or dearer to her than the freckled auctioneer was to her husband there remained for them both to work out their plans for the disposal of that estate and fortune which was their own to deal with as they pleased already james dalbrook had dim notions of a dalbrook scholarship fund in which future barristers should have their long years of waiting upon fortune made easier to them and for which they should bless the memory of the famous advocate happily those brooding fears were not realized this time the bud was not blighted the flower carried no canker in its heart but opened its petals to the morning of life a strong bright blossom revelling in sun and shower wind and spray juanita grew from babyhood to girlhood with hardly an illness save the regulation childish complaints which touched her as lightly as a butterfly's wing touches the flowers her mother was of spanish extraction the granddaughter of a cadiz merchant who had failed in the wine trade and had left his sons and daughters to carve their own way to fortune her father had gone to san francisco at the beginning of the gold fever had been one of the first to understand the safest way to take advantage of the situation and had started a wine-shop and hotel out of which he made a splendid fortune within fifteen years he acquired wealth in good time to send his two daughters to paris for their education and by the time they were grown up he was rich enough to retire from business and was able to dispose of his hotel and wine-store for a sum which made a considerable addition to his capital he established himself in a brand-new first floor in one of the avenues of the bois de boulogne a rich widower more of an american than a spaniard after his long exile and he launched his two handsome daughters in franco-american society from paris they went to london and were well received in that upper middle-class circle in which wealth can generally command a welcome and in which a famous barrister like mr dalbrook ranks as a star of the first magnitude james dalbrook was then at the apogee of his success a large handsome man on the right side of his fortieth birthday he was not by any means the kind of man who would seem a likely suitor for a beautiful girl of three-and-twenty but it happened that his heavenly handsome face and commanding manner his deep strong voice and brilliant conversation possessed just the charm that could subjugate maria morales's fancy his conquest came upon him as a bewildering surprise and nothing could be further from his thoughts than a marriage with the spaniard's daughter and yet within six weeks of their first meeting at a royal academy soiree in the shabby old rooms in trafalgar square mr dalbrook and miss morales were engaged with the full consent of her father who declared himself willing to give his daughter forty thousand pounds strictly settled upon herself for her dowry but who readily doubled that sum when his future son-in-law revealed his desire to become owner of cheriton and to found a family for such a laudable purpose mr morales was willing to make sacrifices more especially as maria's elder sister had offended him by marrying without his consent an offence which was only cancelled by her untimely death soon after her marriage 
juanita was only three years old when her father was raised to the bench and she was not more than six when he was offered a peerage which he accepted promptly very glad to exchange the name of dalbrook still extant over the old shop window in dorchester though the old shopkeepers were at rest in the cemetery outside the town for the title of baron cheriton as lord cheriton james dalbrook linked himself indissolubly with the lands which his wife's money had bought money made in a frisco wine-shop for the most part happily however few of lord cheriton's friends were aware of that fact morales had traded under an assumed name in the minor city and had only resumed his patronymic on retiring from the bar and the wine vaults it will be seen therefore that juanita could not boast of aristocratic lineage upon either side her beauty and grace her lofty carriage and high-bred air were spontaneous as the beauty of a wild flower upon one of those furzy knolls over which her young feet had bounded in many a girlish race with her dogs or her chosen companion of the hour she looked like the daughter of a duke although one of her grandfathers had sold pots and pans and the other had kept order with a bowie-knife and revolver in his belt over the humours of a frisco tavern in the days when the city was still in its rough and tumble infancy fierce as a bull-pup her father who as the years went on worshipped this only child of his never forgot that she lacked that one sovereign advantage of good birth and highly placed kindred and thus it was that from her childhood he had been on the watch for some alliance which should give her these advantages the opportunity had soon offered itself among his dorsetshire neighbours one of the most distinguished was sir godfrey carmichael a man of old family and good estate highly connected on the maternal side and well connected all round and married to the daughter of an irish peer sir godfrey showed himself friendly from the hour of mr dalbrook's advent in the neighbourhood he declared himself delighted to welcome new blood when it came in the person of a man of talent and power lady jane carmichael was equally pleased with james dalbrook's gentle wife the friendship thus begun never knew any interruption till it ended suddenly in a ploughed field between wareham and wimborne where sir godfrey's horse blundered at a fence fell and rolled over his rider ten years after juanita's birth there were two daughters and a son considerably their junior who succeeded his father at the age of fifteen and who had been juanita's playfellow ever since she could run alone the two fathers had talked together of the possibilities of the future while their children were playing tennis on the lawn at cheriton or gathering blackberries on the common sir godfrey was enough a man of the world to rejoice in the idea of his son's marriage with the heiress of cheriton albeit he knew that the little dark-eyed girl with the tall slim figure and graceful movements had no place among the salt of the earth his own estate was a poor thing compared with cheriton and the cheriton stone quarries and he knew that dalbrook's professional earnings had accumulated into a very respectable fortune invested in stocks and shares of the soundest quality altogether his son could hardly do better than continue to attach himself to that dark-eyed child as he was attaching himself now in his first year at eton riding his pony over to cheriton every non-hunting day and ministering to her childish caprices in all things the two mothers had talked of the future with more detail and more assurance than the fathers as men of the world had ventured upon lady cheriton was in love with her little girl's boyish admirer his frank handsome face open-hearted manner and undeniable pluck realized her ideal of high-bred youth his mother was the daughter of an earl his grandmother was the niece of a duke he had the right to call an existing duke his cousin these things counted for much in the mind of the storekeeper's daughter her experience at a fashionable parisian convent had taught her to worship rank her experience of english middle society had not eradicated that weakness 
and then she saw that this fine frank lad was devoted to her daughter with all a boy's ardent feeling for his first sweetheart the years went on and young godfrey carmichael and juanita dalbrook were sweethearts still sweethearts always sweethearts when he was at eton sweethearts when he was at oxford sweethearts in union and sweethearts in absence neither of them ever imagining any other love and now in the westering sunlight of this july evening the bells of cheriton church were ringing a joy peal to celebrate their wedded loves and the little street was gay with floral archways and bright-coloured bunting and mottoes of welcome and greeting and lady cheriton's barouche was bringing the bride and bridegroom to their first honeymoon dinner as fast as four horses could trot along the level road from quiet little wareham by a curious fancy juanita had elected to spend her honeymoon in that one house of which she ought to have been most weary the good old house in which she had been born and where all her days of courtship a ten years courtship had been spent in vain had the fairest scenes of europe been suggested to her she had travelled enough to be indifferent to mountains and lakes glaciers and fjords i have seen just enough to know that there is no place like home she said with her pretty air of authority i won't have a honeymoon at all if i can't have it at cheriton i want to feel what it is like to have you all to myself in my own place godfrey among all the things i love i shall feel like a queen with a slave i shall feel like delilah with samson when you are quite tired of cheriton and subjection you shall take me to the priory and once there you shall be master and i will be slave sweet mastership tyrannous slavery he answered laughing my darling sheraton will suit me better than any other place in the world for my honeymoon for i shall be near my future electors and shall be able to study the political situation in all its bearings upon the isle of purbeck sir godfrey was to stand for his division of the county in the election that was looming in the distance of the late autumn he was very confident of success as a young man might be who came of a time-honoured race and knew himself popular in the district armed with all the newest ideas too full to the brim of the most modern intelligence a brilliant debater at oxford a favourite everywhere his marriage would increase his popularity and strengthen his position with the latent power of that larger wealth which must needs be his in the future the sun was shining in golden glory upon grey stone roofs and grey stone walls clothed with rose and honeysuckle clematis and trumpet ash upon the village forge where there had been no work done since the morning where the fire was out and the men were lounging at door and window in their sunday clothes upon the three or four village shops and the two village inns the humble little house of call opposite the forge with its queer old sign live and let live and the good old george hotel with sprawling dilapidated stables and spacious yard where the mail-coach used to stop in the days that were gone there was a floral arch between the little tavern and the forge a floral display along the low rustic front of the butcher's shop and the cottage post-office was converted into a bower there were calico mottoes flapping across the road welcome to the bride and bridegroom god bless them both long life and happiness and other fond and hearty phrases of time-honoured familiarity but those clashing bells with their sound of tumultuous gladness a joy that clamoured to the blue skies above and the woods below and out to the very sea yonder in its loud exuberance those and the smiling faces of the villagers were the best of all welcomes there were gentlefolks among the crowd a string of pony-carts and carriages drawn up on the long slip of waste grass beyond the forge just where the road turned off to cheriton chase and there were two or three horsemen 
one a young man upon a fine bay cob who had been walking his horse about restlessly for the last hour or so sometimes riding half a mile towards the station in his impatience the carriage came towards the turning-point the bride bowing and smiling as she returned the greetings of gentle and simple emotion had paled the delicate olive of her complexion but her large dark eyes were bright with gladness her straw-coloured tussore gown and leghorn hat were the perfection of simplicity and seemed to surround her with an atmosphere of coolness amidst the dust and glare of the road at sight of the young man on the bay cob she put her hand on sir godfrey's arm and said something to him on which he told the coachman to stop they had driven slowly through the village and the horses pulled up readily at the turn of the road only to think of your coming so far to greet us theodore said juanita leaning out of the carriage to shake hands with the owner of the cob i wanted to be among the first to welcome you that was all he answered quietly i had half a mind to ride to the station and be ready to hand you into your carriage but i thought sir godfrey might think me a nuisance no fear of that my dear dalbrook said the bridegroom i should have been very glad to see you did you ride all the way from dorchester yes i came over early in the morning breakfasted with a friend rested the cob all day and now he is ready to carry me home again what devotion said juanita laughingly yet with a shade of embarrassment what good exercise for peter you mean keeps him in condition against the cubbing begins god bless you juanita i can't do better than echo the invocation above our heads god bless the bride and bridegroom he shook hands with them both for the second time a faint glow of crimson swept over his frank fair face as he clasped those hands his honest grey eyes looked at his cousin for a moment with grave tenderness in which there was a shadow of a lifelong regret he had loved and wooed her and resigned her to her more favoured lover and he was honest in his desire for her happiness his own gladness his own life seemed to him of small account when weighed against her well-being you must come and dine with us before we leave cheriton dalbrook said sir godfrey you are very good i am off to heidelberg for a holiday as soon as i can wind up my office work i will offer myself to you later on if i may when you are settled at the priory come when you like good-bye the carriage turned the corner the crowd burst into a cheer one two three and then another one and then three more cheers louder than the first three and the horses were on the verge of bolting for the rest of the way to cheriton theodore dalbrook rode slowly away from the village festivities rode away from the clang of the joy bells and the sound of rustic triple bob majors it would be night before he reached dorchester but there was a moon and he knew every yard of high road every grassy ride across the wide barren heath between cheriton and the old roman city he knew the road and he knew his horse which was as good of its kind as there was to be found in the county of dorset he was not a rich man and he had to work hard for his living but he was the son of a well-to-do father and he never stinted the price of the horse that carried him and which was something more to theodore dalbrook than most men's horses are to them it was his own familiar friend companion and solace a man might have understood as much only to see him lean over the cob's neck and pat him as he did to-night riding slowly up the hill that leads from cheriton to the wild ridge of heath above Franksea island theodore dalbrook junior partner in the firm of dalbrook and son cornhill dorchester was a more distant relative of juanita's than the sandy first cousin in the auctioneer's office whom lord cheriton had once hated as the only alternative to a charitable endowment the sandy youth was the only son of lord cheriton's elder brother long since dead 
theodore was the grandson of a certain matthew dalbrook a second cousin of lord cheriton's and once upon a time the wealthiest and most important member of the dalbrook family the humble-minded couple in the crockery shop had looked up to matthew dalbrook a solicitor with a handsome old house in cornhill a smart gig a stud of three fine horses and half the county people for his clients to the plain folks behind the counter who dined at one and supped on cold meat and pickles and dutch cheese at nine of the clock mr dalbrook the lawyer was a great man they were moved by his condescension when he dropped in to the five o'clock tea and talked over old family reminiscences the farmhouse on the weymouth road which was the cradle of their race and where they had all known good days while the old people were alive and while the homestead was a family rendezvous that he should deign to take tea and watercresses in the little parlour behind the shop he who had a drawing-room almost as big as a church and a man-servant in plain clothes to wait upon him at his six o'clock dinner was a touching act of humility in their eyes when their younger boy brought home prizes and certificates of all kinds from the grammar school it was from matthew they sought advice modestly and with the apprehension of being deemed over-ambitious i'm afraid he's too much of a scholar for the business said the mother shyly looking fondly at her tall overgrown son pallid with rapid growth and overmuch greek and latin of course he is that boy is too good to sell pots and pans you must send him to the university jim jim the father looked despondently at james the son the university meant something awful in the crockery merchant's mind a vast expenditure of money dreadful hazards to religion and morals friendships with dukes and marquises whose influence would alienate the boy from his parents and render him scornful of the snug back parlour with his grandfather's portrait over the mantelpiece painted in oils by a gifted townsman who had once had a picture very nearly hung in the royal academy i couldn't afford to send him to college he said oh but you must afford it i must help you if you and sarah haven't got enough in an old stocking anywhere as i dare say you have my boys are at the university and they didn't do half as well at the grammar school as your boy has done he must go to cambridge he must be entered at trinity hall and if he works hard and keeps steady he needn't cost you a fortune you would work eh james wouldn't i just that's all james replied with emphasis his heart had sickened at the prospect of the crockery business the consignments of pots and pans the returned empties invoices quarterly accounts matchings rivetings dust straw dirt and degradation he could not see the nobility of labour in that dusty shop below the level of the pavement amid ewers and basins teacups and beer-jugs cherries and ports but to work in the university hard by that great college where bacon had worked and newton and a host of the mighty dead and where wherewell a self-made man was still head to work among the sons of gentlemen and with a view to the profession of a gentleman that would be labour for which to live for which to die if need be if if mother and me were to strain a pint mused the crockery man who was better able to afford the university for his son than many a gentleman of dorset whose boys had to be sent there willy-nilly if mother and me that have worked so hard for our money was willing to spend a goodish bit of it upon sending him to college what are we to do with him after we've made a fine gentleman of him that's where it is you see matt you are not going to make a fine gentleman of him god forbid if he does well at cambridge you can make a lawyer of him trinity hall is the nursery of lawyers you can article him to me and look you here jim if i don't have to help you pay for his education i'll give him his articles there now what do you say to that 
the offer was pronounced a generous one and worthy of a blood relation but james dalbrook never took advantage of his kinsman's kindness his university career was as successful as his progress at the quaint stone grammar school and his college friends who were neither dukes nor marquises but fairly sensible young men all advised him to apply himself to the higher branch of the law so james dalbrook of trinity hall ate his dinners at the temple during his last year of undergraduate life came out seventh wrangler was called to the bar and in due course wore crimson velvet and ermine and became lord cheriton a man whose greatness in some wise overshadowed the small provincial dignity of the house of matthew dalbrook erstwhile head of the family the dalbrooks of dorchester had gone upon their way quietly thriving respected but in no wise distinguished matthew jr had succeeded his father matthew senior and the firm in cornhill had been dalbrook and son for more than thirty years and now theodore the eldest of a family of five was son and his grandfather the founder of the firm was sleeping the sleep of the just in the cemetery outside dorchester lord cheriton was too wise a man to forget old obligations or to avoid his kindred there was nothing to be ashamed of in his connection with a thoroughly reputable firm like dalbrook and son they might be provincial but their name was a synonym for honour and honesty they had taken as firm root in the land as the county families whose title deeds and leases wills and codicils they kept they were well-bred well-educated god-fearing people with no struggling ambitions no morbid craving to get upon a higher social level than the status to which their professional position and their means entitled them they rode and drove good horses kept good servants lived in a good house visited among the county people with moderation but they made no pretensions to being smart they offered no sacrifices of fortune or self-respect to the modern moloch fashion there was a younger son called harrington destined for the church and with advanced views upon church architecture and music and there were two unmarried daughters janet and sophia also with advanced views upon the woman's rights question and with a sovereign contempt for the standard young lady theodore's lines were marked out for him with inevitable precision he had been taken into partnership the day he was out of his articles and at seven-and-twenty he was his father's right hand and represented all that was modern and popular in the firm he was as steady as a rock had an intellect of singular acuteness a ready wit and very pleasing manners he had above all things the inestimable gift of an equable and happy temper he had been everybody's favourite from the nursery upwards popular at school popular at the university popular in the local club popular in the hunting-field and it was the prevailing opinion of dorchester that he ought to marry an heiress and make a great position for the house of dalbrook some people had gone so far as to say that he ought to marry lord cheriton's daughter he had been made free of the great house at cheriton from the time he was old enough to visit anywhere his family had been bidden to all notable festivities had been duly called upon at not too long intervals by lady cheriton he had ridden by juanita's side in many a run with the south dorset foxhounds and had waited about with her outside many a covert they had picnicked and made gypsy tea at corfe castle they had rambled in the woods near studland they had sailed to Branksea and further away to lulworth cove and the romantic caves of stair but this had been all in frank cousinly friendship theodore had seen only too soon that there was no room for him in his kinswoman's heart he began by admiring her as the loveliest girl he had ever seen he had ended by adoring her and he adored her still but with a loyal regard which accepted her position as another man's wife 
and he would have died sooner than dishonour her by one unholy thought it was nearly ten o'clock when he rode slowly along the avenue that led into dorchester the moon was shining between the overarching boughs of the sycamores the road with that high overarching roof had a solemn look in the moonlit stillness the roman amphitheatre yonder with its grassy banks rising tier above tier shone white in the moonbeams the old town seemed half asleep the house in cornhill had a very philistine look as compared with that fine old mansion of cheriton which was present to his mind in very vivid colours to-night those two wandering about the old italian garden hand in hand wedded lovers with the lamp-lit rooms open to the soft summer night and the long terrace and stone balustrade and moss-grown statues of nymph and goddess silvered by the moonbeams the cornhill house was a good old house notwithstanding a panelled house of the georgian era with a wide entrance hall and a well staircase with carved oak balusters and a baluster rail a foot broad the furniture had been very little changed since the days of theodore's great-grandfather for the late mrs dalbrook had cherished no yearnings for modern art in the furniture line her gentle spirit had looked up to her husband as a leader of men and had reverenced chairs and tables bureaus and wardrobes that had belonged to his grandfather as if they were made sacred by that association and thus the good old house and the good old town had a savour of bygone generations an old family air which the parvenu would buy for much gold if he could true that the dining-room chairs were over ponderous and the dining-room pictures belonged to the obscure school of religious art in which you can only catch your saint or your martyr at one particular angle yet the chairs were of a fine antique form and bore the crest of the dalbrooks on their shabby leather backs and the pictures had a respectable brownness which might mean holbein or rembrandt the drawing-room was large and bright with four narrow deeply recessed windows commanding the broad street and the antelope hotel over the way and deep window-seats crammed with flowers here the oak panelling had been painted pale pink and the mouldings picked out in a deeper tint by successive generation of vandals but the effect was cheerful and the pink walls made a good background for the chippendale secretaries and cabinets filled with willow pattern worcester or crown derby the window curtains were dark brown cloth with a border of berlin wool lilies and roses a border which would have set the teeth of an aesthete on edge but which blended with the general brightness of the room old mrs matthew dalbrook the grandmother and her three spinster daughters had toiled over those cross-stitch borders and theodore's mother would have deemed it sacrilege to have put aside this labour of a vanished life harrington dalbrook and his two sisters were in the drawing-room each apparently absorbed in an instructive book and yet all three had been talking for the greater part of the evening it was a characteristic of their highly intellectual lives to nurse a volume of herbert spencer or a treatise upon the deeper mysteries of buddha while they discussed the conduct or morals of their neighbours or their gowns and bonnets i thought you were never coming home theo said janet you don't mean to say you waited to see the bride and bridegroom that is exactly what i do mean to say i had to get old sandown's lease executed and when i had finished my business i waited about to see them arrive do you think you could get me anything in the way of supper janey father went to bed ever so long ago replied janet it's dreadfully late but i don't suppose the cook has gone to bed and perhaps she could condescend to cut me a sandwich or two answered theodore ringing the bell his sisters were orderly young women who objected to eating and drinking out of regulation hours janet looked round the room discontentedly thinking that her brother would make crumbs young men she had observed are almost miracle workers in the way of crumbs 
they can get more superfluous crumbs out of any given piece of bread than the entire piece would appear to contain looked at by the casual eye i have found a passage in spencer which most fully bears out my view theodore said sophia severely referring to an argument she had had with her brother the day before yesterday how did she look asked janet openly frivolous for the nonce lovelier than i ever saw her look in her life answered theodore at least i thought so he wondered as he said these words whether it had been his own despair at the thought of having irrevocably lost her which invested her familiar beauty with a new and mystic power yes she looked exquisitely lovely and completely happy an ideal bride if her nose were a thought longer her face would be almost perfect said janet how was she dressed i could no more tell you than i could say how many petals there are in that dijon rose yonder she gave me an impression of cool soft colour i think there was yellow in her hat pale yellow like a primrose men are such dolts about women's dress retorted janet impatiently and yet they pretend to have taste and judgment and to criticise everything we wear i think you may rely upon us for knowing what we don't like said theodore he seated himself in his father's easy-chair a roomy old chair with projecting sides that almost hid him from the other occupants of the room he was weary and sad and their chatter irritated his overstrung nerves he would have gone straight to his own room on arriving but that would have set them wondering and he did not want to be wondered about he wanted to keep his secret or as much of it as he could no doubt those three knew that he had been fond of her very fond that he would have sacrificed half his lifetime to win her for the other half but they did not know how fond they did not know that he would fain have melted down all the sands of time into one grain of gold one golden day in which to hold her to his heart and know she loved him End of chapter one